Lithium Ion Rock, Season 1, Episode 2. We are recording this on January 27th, Australia Day. By the time you're listening to this in Oz, happy belated Australia Day. And in China and elsewhere where the Lunar New Year is celebrated beginning the 28th of January, I wish you a happy Year of the Pig and a happy goodbye to the Year of the Lithium Dog. I would encourage you to listen to the very end of this Lithium Ion Rocks podcast because we have a special long-distance dedication to a particularly interesting black dog. I published Lithium Ion Bull yesterday, and included in that is a new and improved Mr. Market scoreboard, which I would encourage you to look at. The title is Lithium Go Green. And up from 10 names I mentioned in October, I've added three. So we now have a baker's dozen that are in focus. In addition, I put a column for cash balances, which highlight those companies who have meaningful amounts of cash and highlighted in red those whose cash balances are $5 million and below. The lithium-ion bull and the lithium-ion rocks should be read and listened to in tandem. There's a fair bit of information that uh, won't be discussed in detail in the lithium-ion bull that Rodney and I will discuss here and vice versa. And feel free, there's an email of both of us, and you could follow us on Twitter at HowardKlein10 and at RodneyHooper13. Please feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I'd also like to draw your attention to the disclaimer at the very end of this podcast. All right, Rodney, we're going to talk now about your great note, which you published on LinkedIn over the weekend, uh, labeling Ganfeng as one of your top picks. It's, it's mine, too, but uh, why don't we go through your um, investment case, and uh, I'll ask you a few questions along the way. I have four main reasons why I'm keen on Ganfeng, uh, not least of which, sorry, a fifth would be simply that the price is so low. But the four main investment pillars for Ganfeng, the first one being volume growth, we're seeing an incredible expansion of uh, their production of both carbonate and hydroxide over the next couple of years, uh, pretty much industry-leading. The second point ties into the first point is the, the capital intensity of that volume growth is really quite exceptional, with, uh, particularly in the hydroxide side, where the cost of uh, capital per installed ton of capacity is sub $3,000 they're forecasting it to be $2,700, so even if they're slightly off, it's an, an unbelievably low number. Uh, the third point is improved transparency. Ganfin did the Hong Kong listing. They have now uh, employed Sam Piggott in Canada. So it's likely that we'll, we're going to get far better input and insight into what's happening with Ganfin out of the Hong Kong listing. And then the final fourth pillar is the spodumin price is falling. I wouldn't necessarily say falling, but what you're seeing now is the new contracts with the new suppliers outside of Mount Marion uh, agreeing to contracts which are much more closely tied to the price of, of um, Ganfen's product mix, where the company is, is better insured to earn a decent margin. And even then, uh, you know, using industry averages, because of the uh, quality of uh, Ganfen's management team and production team, they're likely to earn additional margins above the average. So those are the four pillars, volume growth, the cost of capital, intensity to grow that volume growth, improved transparency, and uh, new spodumin offtake contracts that better allow it to lock in and have some operational gearing on margins. 
Sounds good. And they've been extremely busy since their IPO, right? Get, uh, making a couple of um, you know transactions. Why don't you talk about those? Sure. Uh, they executed uh, the LAC deal, taking over SQM's position, uh, and they did it on, I thought, on, on good financial terms. It is uh, still slightly early days, but LAC is, uh, is under construction. I haven't done any major forecasting yet on production, but regardless, they certainly didn't, I don't think, overpay for their position in that, in that transaction. Then we saw Altura, uh, an offtake contract. A few things happened on Altura's side that they ended up needing a new offtake partner. And again, not overly detailed the announcements from either side, but I would think very much like uh, Pilbara and possibly even better terms where Ganfin will be able to lock in and secure a decent operating margin relative to what they uh, pay for the spodumen. And then um, a further investment uh, to help secure Pilbara to help secure their stage two uh, expansion. Uh, you know, they've underpinned a 50 million Aussie equity raise. The pricing, as I understood it, was about 64 cents, which again, considering uh, what we think of Pilbara, I thought they got a very good deal there as well. Okay, that's great. Uh, so very busy since uh, raising that $400 million. Uh, quite a bit of it's uh, been um, committed. In addition, they, they are a lender to LAC, so there are capital calls they're going to have to um, give to, to, to for the Qatari construction. Uh, you also talked about uh, the, the broader industry overview that is, is benefiting Ganfeng. Why don't you talk about that a bit? Uh, what we've seen of late in China is a shift in their subsidy policy, and they have uh, certainly now favoured EVs with longer range and uh, batteries with higher energy density. So what's happened is, effectively, the industry can build better performing cars, and on an after-subsidy basis, it doesn't cost the consumer any more. So what we've seen is a migration in the size of the battery pack of cars, and that's pushed out and now potentially, especially with the inclusion of Tesla into the China market, you could see the average kilowatt hour size drift out to, to 55, up from where it is now, around 50 or less, so that's very helpful. Um, that's an important point, Rodney. I remember hearing uh, Anthony C. Uh, talking about just an increase from 50 kilowatt hour average to 55 kilowatt hour means a very significant increase in uh, LCE, even without an increased EV penetration rate. Yes, yeah, so you, you're getting a, a, a huge benefit. So you're going to get both uh, the percentage growth in sales and uh, the battery sizes. So he's correct. It's, it is positive uh, for, certainly for the, the Chinese market. Why do you think Ganfeng's price fell so much? Now, Ganfen, you know, it's amazing to think back to late 2017, early 2018, when the share price in uh, China hit nearly 70 renminbi, and it had a market cap of slightly over 10 billion US dollars. And here we are now with the Hong Kong implied price, uh, sorry, implied market cap at just over 2 billion. And largely the reason for that, of course, would have been the fall in the uh, China spot price of mostly of carbonates, hydroxide was more resilient. And during 2018, Ganfen's production mix has been far more skewed to carbonates. The expectations are around 40,000 tons 
um, including the expansion and hydroxide only at uh, 28. So what we saw was a big fall in their main uh, product line, but at the same time, the original contracts that they agreed with Mount Marion for offtake, certainly the portion that wasn't theirs, was tied more to rest of world prices that proved far more resilient, certainly on the contract side, than the Chinese spot market. So you had the worst of all worlds. You had a falling uh, sale price and you had a tightening margin. And both effects certainly played out in the Q3 results and the market was brutal. And then, of course, the Hong Kong listing, they uh, had to, they had to uh, get it away. They only ended up raising $400 million at a hefty discount to the Shenzhen price at the time. So post the Hong Kong listing, I'm sure that given the low take-up price, that also weighed heavily on the, uh, on the Shenzhen listed price. The, uh, the lower spodumene prices combined with the uh, higher volumes, in, importantly as well, hydroxide volumes and uh, to export markets to LG Chem and Tesla, their offtake partners, uh, those are things you're highlighting uh, are going to translate into a more upbeat 2019 and 2020. Is that, that correct? Yes, absolutely. So what you're going to see now is um, the... Uh, what uh, my understanding is, is in the pricing mix going forward now for their, their new Spodium and contract offtake agreements is, I've estimated about 65% of it will be tied to the China X-Works uh, carbonate price, spot price, and then 30% uh, rest of world's battery grade carbonate price, and then a tiny 5% uh, China lithium hydroxide spot price. So you're going to see a far more hedged uh, a pr production side from uh, carbonate, but you're going to see an enormously leveraged uh, operational leverage on the hydroxide side because your feed price is coming in linked to carbonate and a lot of it uh, domestic pricing, whereas uh, Ganfen is going to probably export something in the region of 60 to 70% of the hydroxide output and going to be achieving... Who knows, but at the moment we're looking at about a $4,000 uh, spread between hydroxide to carbonate. So it's going to really flow through just from an operating margin perspective. And then, of course, their uh, capacity growth is uh, phenomenal. We're looking at growing to something like 93,500 tons up from uh, you know, 31,000 in 2017. So literally a tripling in capacity. Granted, they won't uh, have quite... Uh, ramped up all of those, you know, by the end of 2020, but still an exceptional growth path. That, that's a huge growth path, and uh, th we're only talking about conversion of hard rock here. We're not talking about brines, and this is something that uh, Ganfeng is seriously experienced with. That said, these are very big plants, uh, 20,000, 17,500, uh, I think, coming on stream are, are much larger than the the five and 8,000 tonners, but uh, I'm confident they will execute uh, pretty well. You're suggesting that uh, a multiple of 9 to 10 uh, on Ganfeng compared to kind of 5 or 6 where it's trading, you think that's the, the, the reasonable? I, I, yeah, I do, uh, Howard. I think that um, it's only fair that, obviously, given the fact that they are not a vertically integrated producer from the Spodgerman side, uh, other than, obviously, their share of the Mount Marion uh, project is... Um, 
they have an exceptional volume growth offset by slightly lower margins to the other vertically integrated producers. So I think they balance each other out. So that 9 to 10 is really bringing them in line with where the other major producers are currently trading. If those, uh, if we see a rally in lithium shares, then I, it's, you know, it's quite conceivable that they could all move up. But for now, I think they deserve a parity rating given um, that their volume growth, uh, you know, offsets, to my mind, adequately a slightly lower margin. But those margins, as I've mentioned, are now pretty well hedged against the Spodgerman, uh, Spodgerman contract offtake off agreements that now, you know, um, far better reflect uh, uh, Ganfen's exposure. All right, that sounds good. I'll, I'll uh, revisit that question on uh, multiple. I, I think um, a little bit differently, you know, I don't know that we should have parity, but we'll, I'll go into that uh, subsequently. Uh, just a couple more questions. Where do you think SE6 prices need to go for Chinese converters to make a reasonable margin? Uh, in the report that I've just released, I, I put a table in there. I think, you know, the question is, I guess it can be argued, is what is a reasonable margin? Because if you have a look at another table I've included in my report, the capital intensity per ton, even in China, varies considerably. So you have some operators, uh, well, sorry, that's not fair, but there is, a dis there is a disparity between operators. So to put a fixed margin across the entire industry won't necessarily uh, fairly uh, you know, reflect what some people need to earn in order to pay back the capital and survive. But that's the beauty of Ganfen. They're at the absolute lower end, certainly in the hydroxide. But if we assume 10 to 20 percent is a, reason, a reasonable margin, and we are looking at 11 to 12,000 as the uh, China spot price for lithium carbonate battery grade, including VAT, then you kind of need to be somewhere in the uh, $700 a ton range. So I notice. The most recent pricing guidance coming out of, uh, I think it was uh, Fast Markets, was 675. So it looks as if the average bodgeman price is arguable, of course, whether that's all 6%. But assuming 6%, eleven dollars to $12,000 a ton, you need around 700. If spot prices are going to drop below that, we could be seeing a move closer to uh, 600, which you and I have had the conversation. There are a lot of spodumin producers that are still ramping up with high strip ratios and high costs. How they'll be able to cope with a $600 sale price when their costs for some of them are around that level could get interesting. Okay, uh, appreciate that. Uh, finally, what, what do you see as the key risks to Ganfeng? I think the key risks on, on, on Ganfeng is, uh, well, I would say risk, but why they wouldn't be as attractive from an investor standpoint is realistically Hong Kong is the only listing that foreign investors would participate in that only issued 200 million shares at $2 a share that's now dropped so we're talking in the 300 millions as a market cap so pretty illiquid and some of the original uh, takers won't sell so free float is small um, the ability, you know, with capital controls in China, I don't know, does it now mean that Hong Kong is the only vehicle by which Ganfen can grow, in which case they are going to have to execute perfectly and grow organically and, you know, cheaply with 
their cost of CAPEX, but it might, might be limiting. And um, the question is, if there are any floor prices in the Spodgerman contract offtake agreements and China spot price drops uh, and they're forced to pay a minimum, that could put their operating margins under pressure. enjoyed your piece on uh, Livent. Why don't you give us a bit of a valuation commentary? Well, thanks. Yeah, we'll speak about Livent a bit uh, later, but uh, you made a comment that you thought parity should be possible with Ganfeng to, let's say, their peers, Livent and Albemarle. And I would argue that Ganfeng will almost always trade at a discount um, if you're using a Western investor's mind. For corporate transparency, corporate governance, and, and other issues, non-emerging market, et cetera, but also because they're going to have lower margins. They're not vertically integrated. I think steady state, uh, I saw the consensus forecast is maybe 25 to 30 percent margins, whereas Albemarle and, and Livent will be you know, in the 40s. So um, it's interesting that Livent and Ganfeng have nearly identical market caps uh, today, despite Ganfeng having nearly twice the sales and twice the expected forecast sales in the 2019-2020 period. Ganfeng, the most important thing behind the multiple, in my opinion, is uh, not is this a specialty chemical or a commodity chemical, but is there certainty and predictability of uh, and quality in their earnings. And in Livent and Albemarle's case, because they have long-term contracts, you know, fixed price, I think there's more predictability, whereas Ganfeng has more variability in their input prices. And also, if you look at their offtake with LG Chem, it's based on quarterly pricing. So they have more volatile sale price. So greater volatility translates into um, you know, less predictability and therefore somewhat lower quality earnings and therefore lower multiple. I also take your point on the trading liquidity and corporate transparency. Absolutely $300 million of free float, uh, of which half was taken by their cornerstone investors, which included some state-owned enterprises as well as Samsung and LG Chem, uh, there's just not a lot of float. You know, in America, a Joe Battery Pack investor investing in the Hong Kong listing of um, of Ganfeng could only, uh, you know, there's two million dollars of trading volume per day. The question is, what should a steady state discount be? Um, I think 25 to 30 percent, where it is today, is reasonable. I think 40 to 50 percent would be too much. I think it's possible that that could narrow to 15 or 20 percent. And in some cases, it actually may trade at a premium. There are times when the Chinese retail investor uh, or the Hong Kong investor gets giddy for equities, as they did in 2015 and 2016, and it's risk on again. You can't rule that out. And in that case, the tight liquidity free float uh, works to your benefit, because there could just be a, a, a pile into that. But Absent, you know, some bubble-like risk-on mentality, steady state, I think Ganfeng, you know, if you're a institutional hedge fund in, in New York, you're, you're likely to trade Livent at a premium and Albemarle at, at, at a premium. On an absolute basis, so that's a relative basis commentary, on an absolute basis, I wrote in the Lithium Bowl, is this industry a specialty chemical or a commodity chemical? And as I said, that's less relevant. However much uh, Albemarle and Livent talk about everything being different, it all comes down to 
predictability, certainty, quality of the earnings. And it is possible that the market, you know, just ratcheted down these multiples from when they priced the live end IPO, they said it should trade at a 12 times multiple. And then December, everything got marked down and now it's trading at 10 or, or maybe below that. So has that philosophy changed? I've been walking around for three years looking at this um, Rockwood and Tangshi bidding for Talazin at 14 times EV to EBITDA and then Albemarle for Rockwood paid 17 times EV to EBITDA saying that lithium is a great business because they trade at these high multiples. Reinforcing that high multiple mentality is the Albemarle for mineral resources transaction. This makes me uh, quite optimistic that uh, companies of strategic value to a, a lithium oligopolist will, you know, in a competitive you know, bidding process, will continue to get those very high multiples. And as we look at Mr. Market Scoreboard and, and early stage companies um, and, and mid-stage companies, trying to find those with attributes that could attract, you know, the oligopoly um, are, are likely to garner, you know, premium valuations. Howard, it seems that uh, live and spinning out of FMC has had a very busy time. You want to just take us through those that timeline? Yes, uh, in early October, actually, there were back-to-back -back IPOs. Ganfeng uh, was October 4th and Livent October 10th. Um, I, I labeled this kind of, you know, rocky. Um, it looks like both of them were, were very battered and bruised after that, and it was kind of a split decision, although most uh, people uh, watching the original Rocky saw, thought Rocky won. Uh, the book build, if you just go back there, was an eight to twenty dollar range, but they ended up pricing it at seventeen. You know, Ganfeng's range was much wider, from sixteen and a half to twenty-six and a half, and was priced at the bottom. I've called Livent, you know, the real thing, uh, comparing it to Coke and uh, you know certain branding genius. I know there was some commentary about uh, the the name that they picked, Livent, and and a Canadian company that went bankrupt. But overall, I look at uh, them. As, as Coke, uh, they have a 60-year history, they spun out of a 183-year-old company. Their history traces back to North Carolina when they were producing hydroxide and, and carbonate from spodumene pegmatites there. Um, it surprised me and many others, uh, but according to the IPO prospectus using Roskill data that Livent is the lowest cost producer of both carbonate and hydroxide. I was surprised to have seen that. Uh, I've called this uh, spin out Philadelphia Freedom. They're based in Philadelphia. 15% has now um, been spun off. Uh, they're on schedule for a full kind of declaration of independence on March 1st when uh, 100%, you know, so the company will have $2 billion thereabouts of freely floating pure play lithium shares. They argue, uh, Paul Graves, their CEO, again, going back to this Declaration of Independence, uh, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, not all lithium is created equal. And that's something that they emphasize greatly. They are a hydroxide and lithium metal leader, as well as you know, many other uh, lithium compounds like butyl lithium. They have a very strong balance sheet, zero debt, although they have a $400 credit line uh, from Citibank. They already have 10 sell-side analysts covering them, five or six from the syndicate and four or five you know, outside of the syndicate. They talk about their contracts, their pricing, um, that have certainty, predictability, again, going back to uh, multiple conversation. I just think that there's, they're fully integrated. They have a single asset. 
100% uh, of their focus is there. And uh, because of the, they're having their customers help underwrite their, their growth strategy, um, you know, I'm confident they will have, you know, mid-40s margins with uh, much less volatility uh, over the next couple of years' growth. And tell me, uh, Howard, uh, do you think their strategy is a house of cards? Should they focus on chloride and carbonate? Yeah, I know some have argued uh, for that, and uh, with they do make a good carbonate, they do make a good chloride, and chloride uh, will it does go into metal, and metal is the holy grail, um, you know, for solid state. But uh, look, I'm not uh, one to question their strategy. They're consuming most of their carbonate internally. I think something like 88 or 85 percent is going into hydroxide, and their margins are 45 to 47 percent. So that's that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, so they are somewhat short carbonates. If you look at their growth uh, strategy in the next short while, they're going to grow their carbonate, I think, uh, to 60,000 tons, and their hydroxide to 55,000 tons. You know, longer term, but in the short term, I think uh, in the next couple of years their carbonate won't be, you know, as great. They do have, the, the one relationship they have is with Namaska. Uh, I understand that needs to be um, renegotiated and we're, we're, we're waiting to hear on that. But uh, I, I don't think it's a house of cards. I think they know what they're doing. I think 20 years they've gotten it right. And, um, you know, but going forward, the industry is growing very rapidly and brines are slow to ramp. So a, a, a real question will be, you know, going forward is what do they do beyond, um, you know, Argentina? Uh, and we could talk about it in a second, but I, I would say also th their capital intensity is not small. You were commenting on Ganfeng. It's, it's insanely low capital intensity to build hydroxide and carbonate plants in China. So Livent, you know, if you look at their CapEx, are similar to some of the... Um, other brines that are being uh, constructed, you know, Lithium Americas, and if you look at some of the definitive feasibility studies, it, it is expensive. That said, the vertical integration enables them to have, you know, higher operating margins and, uh, you know, long-term, the lower OPEX, higher cash flows is, is that trade-off. And what are the future? Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the risks is uh, just having a single asset in any country and then a single asset in Argentina is, um, you, you know, there is some risk. The benefit of it is unlike Albemarle or, or Ganfeng, which has so many operations in multiple locations, they just need to focus one place here. And there's, because it's a proven process, they're saying there's no design risk, you know, no technology risk, they're just replicating. So, so that's good, but I, I would expect especially given the change in narrative to, you know, hydroxide being cheaper from hard rock, that there being a hydroxide leader, they may look to a hard rock in, in, in other, you know, better sovereign jurisdictions uh, over time. And I think they're in a very good position to do that. They, the question is, will they pursue a Ganfeng-like strategy like they did with Namaska, being an offtake party of, you know, first resort? Or might they go the route of uh, an SQM, you know, KDR, uh, Kidman, and uh, use their hydroxide expertise and, and take significant equity stakes and, and build refineries and the like uh, in mines and refineries? Uh, or might they go whole hog and, uh, you know, buy entire mines um, and build their own 
hydroxide facilities. I think that's to be seen. I don't think, I think they're focused on the full spin out and uh, over the course of 2019 and more likely 2020, 2021, you'll probably see them as uh, a prospective partner, um, acquirer, um, and conceivably they could get acquired themselves. Uh, that is another thing going into a, um, a multiple conversation compared to Ganfeng. Ganfeng could be acquired, but I think it's less likely than let's say uh, Livent would be. Welcome, Guy Barasa, CEO of Namaska Lithium, who has won the award of being the first ever Lithium Ion Rocks guest. Rodney is going to start the questioning. Uh, looking at the cash that you raised last year and the use of proceeds and your latest updates uh, released in October, is it fair to say that Namaska won't need to come to the market for any further capital this year? Well, the way we finance the... Um uh, 1.1 billion Canadian raised. We are expecting not to have to go back to the market when we raised it. Currently, we still have 75 million dollar US uh, available from the second tranche of the streaming agreement that we expect to uh, be drawing around June of 2019. Thereafter, we will uh, we still have in escrow 350 million dollar US from the um, secured bond that we issued. We uh, have to spend all of the equity we raised plus the uh, full $150 million streaming money before we uh, are able to draw from the bonds. To draw from the bonds, we uh, will have to complete uh, a cost-to-complete test certified by an independent engineer for the trustee, for the bondholders. So therefore, depending where we are uh, with the um, uh, with the budget and uh, evolu evolution of the construction, uh, we might or might not have to go back to the market before being able to draw from the, the bonds. Are things all still on track and on budget? The mine is uh, scheduled to be completed October 6, 16. 2019, and we're still talking about uh, end of August of 2020 for the hydrochemical plant. So we do expect by the end of February to uh, be able to uh, give the, an update as where we are as of January 31st, and how we see the uh, the budget evolving um, for the whole project. Okay, great. And uh, your long-term cost of production for the spodumen is low in the feasibility, but can you give us any guidance as to what that cost is likely to be as you ramp up and commission production from Q3 this year and sell to General Lithium through Hanwha before your, you know, the Shawnigan plant is ready? We have the 25-27 months of big agreements with General Lithium starting uh, in, uh, at the end of 2019. All that the spot domain that we're going to be producing while commissioning, ramping up, and once in full production, that will not be needed until uh, we are fully commissioned and ramping up into the electrochemical plant in 2020-2021, uh, is already sold to uh, General Lithium, like you mentioned. We, uh, in the feasibility study, uh, delivered to Shaolian, the uh, spot domain 6.25% LI2O is expected to uh, be uh, costing about $257 US uh, during commissioning and ramp up. 
uh, you're not at your full uh, volume, so the price is going to be a little higher. But we do expect to uh, have a good control on the the cost structure. And, and what's the cost from that port to China? Seventy-five to one hundred dollars U.S. Guinea, what are your thoughts uh, on lithium prices and the price spread between hydroxide and carbonate? The spot price of uh, lithium carbonate in China have realigned. We're seeing now currently $10,500 to $12,000 U.S. Uh, and I don't believe that in the future uh, we're going to see it going much lower than that because of the actual uh, cost structure and uh, chain of supply of lithium salts around the world. So about 50% of the world supply comes from China. And China is dependent on importing raw material, mostly importing raw material from Australia, from third parties. That comes with a cost, obviously, because there's an export tax in Australia, an import tax in China. Of course, profit taken by the producer in Australia, landed price, uh, CIF China, of uh, 6% concentrate, at the minimum of 500 US. We hear it's currently... Uh, from third parties around the 600. Production cost of carbonate in China all in would not be much lower than about $9,000 US. So uh, at that production cost, I don't see anybody in China wanting to uh, to sell its uh, carbonate lower than uh, the 10,500 $10, to $12,000. Uh, there's always been a premium for hydroxide over carbonate in the in the past mainly because hydroxide uh, comes was coming mainly from um, uh, brine producers and they have the added cost from carbonate to hydroxide because they do they need to do a further conversion they had a uh, they still have a 1000 to 2000 dollars added cost so representing what people on the market call the premium. And I do believe it's going to remain like this for a while because a lot of people talk about the fact that hydroxide is not going to be produced by spodumene, so directly from spodumene, having it about the same cost of production as carbonate. But in reality, uh, even if the Chinese start to increase their production of hydroxide and try to make it directly, quality and homogeneity of production will remain a very uh, big challenge for them and for the OEM battery manufacturers and car manufacturers uh, outside of China. People have to understand that there's a big difference in quality and specification for a Chinese domestic market using raw material uh, as, uh, well, raw material, some carbonate or some hydroxide for their own internal need versus what the rest of the world wants or can accept. Uh, we have to remember that uh, all of the increase of the demand comes from uh, electric cars manufacturers. And electric car manufacturers, uh, like any car manufacturers, need to give a guarantee on their product and they're guaranteeing the, the batteries. So obviously they cannot, absolutely not afford to have material that is not uh, of highest quality, highest purity. And currently, uh, the hydroxide, Chinese hydroxide, does not meet uh, that criteria for uh, very serious uh, outside of China car manufacturers.
that, that's an interesting point that you've been making, Rodney. You you, you question the um, the quality uh, in China versus Korea and Japan. The problem in China in general, and I'm not referring specifically either to Chenqi or Gantang, the commissioning and being able to get it to spec and maintain the specs. Traditionally in China, they uh, were, and uh, most of them are still working in batches. Therefore, from one lot of production to the other lot of production, you may have significant uh, variation in the impurities level. So it's a big challenge, and that's one of the things. Of course, the Chinese want to export, and I know that Gansang is doing so. I know that Chenqi is doing so, and I know that uh, some of them uh, do not meet the, uh, the standards and that are still in the qualification period. Last check, as a company, you had about um, 90% of production secured with offtakes. Is that still the case? Yeah, we have, uh, strictly talking, 74% roughly that is under contract, committed contract. And we have a right of first offer for 20% in favor of SoftBank. So that's why we say that we have a 94% that is committed. So uh, we do expect, and we've been in, uh, informed by SoftBank of their uh, very uh, intention to take that 20%. So that's why we can... We can say that we have over 90% of our capacity committed currently. If my memory serves, Orion will pay you 40% of sales proceeds to receive 14.5% of total production subject to a 5,000 ton cap. Is there a floor price or value for Orion's 40% or can that number go as low as prices go? Uh, it is directly linked to the actual sales that we're going to be making, so uh, it has no floor. Have you had any feedback uh, from other investors as to why the share would trade at such a low price to net present value this close to production? The bad market in general for lithium, the uh, new innovative process, and uh, skepticism in general in any uh, construction project. When the full financing was done, I wrote in the Lithium Bold, I think uh, June of last year, uh, Rockin' in the Free World, um, which is a Neil Young, a Canadian Neil Young, and you're a Canadian company. And, uh, but the, the, the Free World was, uh, you have very specifically seemed to have taken a non-China approach um, to your financing. However, when I was reading the Red Herring of Tangxi, I was reminded that uh, they have a small investment in Damascus. So uh, can you just describe that history uh, of Tangxi in China and um, why you have seemed to have consciously you know, made a non-China approach with the exception of selling the spodumene you know, through general lithium. Sure, absolutely. Uh, the Tangxi story is a very interesting and long one, so uh, we'll try to cut it short. But uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, meet Mr. Yang and uh, Vivian Yi in July of 2010. And uh, when I was looking uh, in China for uh, potential of take uh, uh, clients, uh, initially trying to develop the Spadumin project, uh, they have uh, been a very good shareholder with us, good investor. Uh, at some point, they owned close to 20% of the company. In October of 2012, when we released our initial uh, PEA, uh, they told me that they would be backing the whole financing uh, and that we didn't need to uh, to look for anything else. Uh, they were definitely very supportive of our project, 
unfortunately for us, and maybe fortunately for them, they um, they had to overbid Rockwood in the acquisition of Talisman. So according to the, the, the different financing they had to do to do that, they were uh, uh, forbidden from uh, or restricted from any further lithium investment uh, while they were indebted to uh, CIC. So uh, they stopped investing in us. They have not sold one single share that they acquired in 2011. Uh, now they own maybe about 2.5%. But it's a matter of dilution since they did not invest after 2011 because of the Talisman acquisition. So um, it's not, it's not, I wouldn't say it's not fair to say that we uh, purposely decided not to go with Chinese investment in the last round of financing. We've been approached uh, in 2016, 2017 uh, by a large, very large number of different Chinese uh, companies interested be it car manufacturers, battery manufacturers, other um, uh, players in that lithium uh, sector in China. And the, uh, the issue uh, rapidly became obvious that you could not make a deal with a Chinese company uh, that had no money already outside of China. So it was a very much too long process to freeze the project hoping that the Chinese would come with a, uh, an agreed investment outside of China uh, and that you could close. And uh, we were talking projects of uh, 9 to 12 months. And uh, the, the reality is that to, to be able to obtain the, the authorization from the Chinese government to get the money out in a project, you needed to lock your project with them. So have a final binding agreement. So uh, we decided that it was not worth the, uh, the efforts and the risk, mostly the risk, to stop the whole project for maybe a year, and with the risk at the end of not seeing the money or not getting the final authorization by the Chinese government. Uh, there is no need, honestly, no need for us to sell uh, material to China. There's so much demand coming for high purity uh, lithium hydroxide around the world outside of China that uh, we leave the Chinese uh, producers and the Australian provider of spodumene concentrate in the Chinese domestic market. They we're only going to be producing roughly 36,000 tons of lithium hydroxide per year. But 36,000 tons is uh, barely 25% of the uh, annual requirement simply for uh, Volkswagen. So uh, you see that uh, there's a lot, lot of other clients that need material that are not in China, that uh, are closer to us, and uh, that's what we're targeting. And that's exactly what we have in the actual uh, agreements, uh, uptake agreements that we've signed. And Guy, one final question for now is, uh, you just had some meetings in New York. What's the feedback you've been getting from the investors? Uh, they're still very uh, keen on the uh, on the prospect of uh, the lithium market. Everybody, I think, is waiting uh, on the, the next milestones or uh, news coming the, the quarterly calls for the from the real producer uh, to confirm the the sales price and the increase in the in the demand or the sales. Long term and mid term, I have not heard any negative on the on the prospect of lithium. Uh, absolutely not.
they're saying podcasting now is like the early days of um, of radio. And Casey Kasem, I don't know if you had if, if heard. I this, remember you, him. You remember him, like America's I Top did. Forty. One of the famous segments on America's Top Forty was at the end of the program a long distance dedication. I'd like to give a long distance dedication to a black dog in the Tar Heel State. You may recall that Led Zeppelin's among my favorite bands, and there's a very special song with your name on it, Black Dog, which I think is appropriate as the year of the dog is now over, and it is now the year of the pig. Respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have conviction, to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this or any other lithium-ion rocks or lithium-ion bull, that's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.